an introduction, but I'm going to get someone else to do it today. So Rachel from the, um, the Heritage Centre has a few words to say, and then we'll pass over to Laura. So, I'll just sit up. <laughs> Hi everyone, um, I'm a librarian from Norfolk Heritage Centre, my name's Rachel, and we're running a project at the moment um, called Fantasy Realms of Imagination. We've got an exhibition on at the Millennium Library on the ground floor in the second floor. Um, and we're running like a programme of events around this exhibition. So it's all about like how the genre of fantasies come from folklore and from folk tales and fairy tales and um, the sort of tropes that we see in fantasy films and books come from folklore that we all know. Um, so the Folklore Society kindly curated a programme of talks for us, of which this is one of, that didn't make sense, of which this is one. <laughs> And the next three are going to be at the library. That's not a spoiler, is it? No, no, that's okay. Good. <laughs> the next three are going to be at the library. Um, we're also with the Folklore Society hosting a fantasy fandom fest, um, which is going to be a chance to learn about Dungeons and Dragons, paint some Warhammer models, meet some live action role players, and the Folklore Society are chairing a zine panel from four until five. So this is at the library as well. Um, and there's flyers at the back, so do grab one of those if you're interested. Um, and it's thanks to funding from Anguish's Education Foundation and the Arts Council that we've been able to do this. So I think that's everything. And there'll be more collaborative events happening in the new year as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So yeah, over to Laura now. Hello. <laughs> um, so normally I'm a performer and musician and then sometimes I do a little bit of talking when I'm introducing my tunes and compositions and quite a lot of them have uh, roots in sort of Norfolk landscape and folklore but that usually comes after I've written it, if that makes sense. When I'm listening back I'm like, oh god, that sounds like Black Shuck's claws scratching down a door in Blythe Church, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so what I thought I would do is I've got like a couple of areas that I thought I'd talk about. One is um, my kind of personal everyday folklore, um, which I'm sure some of you will probably have the same ones, and some of you might have different ones, who knows. Um, and then I was going to talk a bit about, um, I was a research assistant to Jennifer Westwood, who's the um, author, folklorist and author of Law of the Land, the Penguin published um, compendium with Jacqueline Simpson. Um, that was a while ago, but I'll tell you a little bit about that. And then I'm going to play you a little bit, and then I'm going to talk about Marshall, the zine that I've accidentally started. <laughs> um, so, right. <laughs> um, here we go. My everyday folklore that must be adhered to at all times. Um, number one, boiled eggs and witches' boats. Does anyone know that one? Yeah. Good. Uh, when you've eaten your boiled egg, you must ensure that the shell is completely broken and can in no way be used as a boat. You have to crush every surface that looks like it could have the potential for being used as a sailing vessel. If you don't do this, then witches will use your eggshell as a boat and sail slash fly around the room, and that would be really bad because, and nobody ever told me why, that would be bad. <laughs> so, um, Anyway, that would be bad. Okay. Um, I don't know how common that one is. Um, some of, um, I was born in Norwich and have been away and then come back. So, um, I don't know. My dad's very proud that um, we've been here for 500 years. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I 
Um, and so I do feel like some of it is definitely local folklore. <laughs> so, um, okay, never put new shoes on a table. Um, this is one of the most seriously unlucky things that you could do. I'm not really sure why you would do it, so I hope nobody ever does that. Um, so it's very unlucky. Again, not sure why, but I'm not willing to risk doing it. Okay, so if anyone knows, you can tell me at the end. Um, always throw salt over your left shoulder. When seasoning or cooking your food, always make sure you have a morsel left between your fingers and throw it over your left shoulder. Um, and then we get to the end of seasoning without some left. Okay? So even if you have to put salt on multiple times so that you've got some left, that's what you need to do. Um, or else. Okay? <laughs> so I, just, I really researched and I was told all of the really useful parts about why not to do things. Okay. Um, obviously, Helen is a magpie. We all know that, don't we? And you have to see two on the same day, otherwise that's just awful bad luck. Um, uh, white rabbit, white rabbit, white rabbit. Does everybody do that on the first of the month? Yeah. Yes? Oh, good. Anyone else? Lots of unlucky people in here. <laughs> so you should start doing that. I usually get a text from my mum with three white rabbits, and then I get a message from my dad, and then it goes on all day, and it's like, thank God it's the second, so we'll move on. But anyway, white rabbit three times is important. Um, turning silver on a new moon. No, so if you put silver in your pocket and you see a new moon, uh, or borrow some someone, <laughs> some spoon, whatever you've got lying around. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's an important one. Um, again, it's all just all to do with luck. I think my parents are quite keen on <laughs> trying to bring luck in somehow there. Um, ladders is an obvious one. Um, just health and safety. You know. <laughs> um, and then breaking a mirror, this is a serious yet uncommon one. Well, it's not uncommon, is it? It doesn't happen very often, though. Um, certainly is bad luck, so just don't do it, because no one can afford that kind of length of bad luck hanging over them. So, I think you can see how thoroughly researched all of my stuff is. No, some of it really, honestly, is researched. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, working with Jen, um, Jen Westwood. Um, so after I returned to Norfolk, I was at Music College in London, and I went to the UEA to do a Master's in Performance, when they still have a music department. Um, and then we quickly skipped through that bit, so I'm not going to go into that, but then um, when I finished and graduated and stuff, I was uh, doing a combination of gigs and touring and uh, being a research, a freelance research assistant to uh, Jen. And uh, I was charged with reference checking in the UEA and Norwich libraries, at one point checking the origins of fairy rings and following long, really slow conversations that were published in the Gentleman's magazine. So they get, I can't remember how often they were published, maybe weekly, but they were so slow, and there was just a man saying, Forsooth, have you seen a cow pup recently? And I'm going, I do believe that it has something to do with fairy rings. And then someone would write back, and it would just say ages. So I just sat in the dark doing that for a little while. But um, Jen would argue, okay, so she was a friend of the family and also grew up in the next village to me. So. I grew up in Thirlton, which is like on the marshes near Edom, and she grew up uh, quite a few years before me in Norton Subcourse. And um, she, so she, yeah, so 
She was a family friend, and I was always really fascinated with her knowledge. She was a really serious person and unfluffy, except when it came to animals. And you could often find in her bathroom lots of little tiny hoglets that she'd rescued because she was a chairperson of the um, Hedgehog Preservation Society. <laughs> so she was very, very, very serious about animals, but could definitely do without people. Um, she had a really soft side, and um, yeah, so you'd find that. And also, she would, um, she somehow managed to get all of the water <laughs> birds, all of the birds from the entire area all congregated in her garden and they were spending like 50 pounds a week on bird food because she got so into it and they were like oh let's go there so they were just all there every week well every day and she was just literally I've got to go and get some bird food all the time um, so when she wasn't doing that um, we would she wasn't really whimsical she wasn't kind of like a whimsical folk law do you know what I mean like she wasn't she took it really, really, well, she was a researcher, an academic, and she took it really, really seriously. And so if somebody said some nonsense, like, I would have been told off so many times for every single thing I've said already, so that's fine. But um, she, yeah, she, she studied with Tolkien, and she studied Norse mythology, so a lot of this stuff came into her writing and her books and her library, which is a really great place to have a look as well. Um, and actually, now that I think her house, her husband is letting her house out where she wrote um, for Airbnb. So if you want to go and see where she did her writing and fed all the birds and looked after hedgehogs, then you can for about a thousand pounds. Yes, anyway. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, we used to wassail our apple trees with her in the new year. And we would argue about um, Twelfth Night and what day it fell on every year. Is it 12 days? Is it the seventh of the day or the sixth night? And all that stuff, you know. Um, and when we weren't doing that kind of thing, and she wasn't feeding all the animals, she was in her attic writing um, or drinking wine. Or planning a research trip to take part in a pilgrimage um, that looked into different traditions throughout Europe. And she wrote a book called Sacred Journeys, which I don't know if anyone's seen, but it's really amazing. And she just went on them all and then wrote about them and captured all of the traditions of folklore that were happening. Um, so this um, definitely impacted on my experience and love of folklore. I think I'd always been really interested in stories through music and through instrumental music, uh, which is like my main area rather than song. Um, so I studied basically medieval, Renaissance, Baroque, and then really contemporary music. So I missed out the whole romantic and classical thing. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it was vocal music. So I had the songs and I had the vocals and the lines and the words in my head while I was playing. And so that's really sort of informed how I compose and how I write. And quite often if I'm playing or improvising, um, uh, words will come in and then I just think it's all about communication and all about call and response and, and that kind of happens through my music. Um, I feel like I'm rushing through, sorry. I can just breathe. It's fine, you're all lovely. <laughs> um, so, I did write this a bit wrong. I said, because I'm a self-taught fiddle player, but I wrote elf-taught. <laughs> weird typo. <laughs> so self-taught on the fiddle or violin, same thing. 
um, and learned by going to learn some folk sessions around East Anglia, especially sort of Yarmouth and Norwich and Lowestoft, and a little bit in Beckles. Um, uh, yeah, so what I wanted to do though, this is where the sort of folklore and music kind of, I don't know if they divide or come together, but I was never hugely into the East Anglian traditional music, and I really wanted to try and make my own. I wanted to be able to play something that I felt I had some ownership over, or with, or connection with. But I didn't feel that with our local music of kind of hammered dulcimer and melodians and sea shanties. So I kind of went further and further back and looked at earlier music from like the fifth century onwards, and. Um, then started using fragments of medieval stuff from the whole of Europe and different empires and things and bringing that into my work and then that became kind of, I realised that that's my tradition and we're all, we all just make up, all our experiences make us our own tradition, if that makes sense. So um, then I kind of like thought, actually, maybe I, I have got something to say. I've played so much traditional music and so much early music and I, you know, I just wanted, I felt like everything I put under my fingers that I must have something to say that is sort of authentically from me or from here or something like that. Um, yeah, um, I think I just said that, yes I did. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to move on to the next bit there. Um, yeah, so something that I did after, I was living in Norwich for about 10 years and then I'm playing in a band called Horses Brawl with Adrian Lieber. And we used to play in this very crypt, <laughs> this very underground place, and it smells the same <laughs> 15 years later. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I used to sort of make my own rituals. Once we, we stopped playing together, and um, I, I felt like I was always kind of dependent on playing with somebody else. And then, but I really felt like I had I had a voice. What what is it? Um, what have I got to say? And so I started kind of with the um, encouragement of my husband who said just go and play and I was like what do you mean just play it's like playing music you forget to do the play part and you're so focused on playing the notes and the repertoire and the this and the that and getting ready for a gig or a concert that you forget that it's meant to be fun and <laughs> enjoyable and creative so I used to go um, and get in my car with my violin and go to some of the churches around South Norfolk um, um, the ones that are open like dawn till dusk and I would just go there um, see if it's open see if there's anyone in it peek <laughs> down the middle and then um, just get my violin out and my zoom recorder and um, improvise and I felt really uncomfortable and weird and I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it so I did that for about a year and I made myself get to the point where I was able to just just play like spontaneously. Um, so the reason this is <laughs> relevant as well is because I had never connected my music to the landscape or to folklore. But once I put this first album out, um, which was Quick Sparrows Over the Black Earth, which was nearly 10 years ago, um, people kept referencing East Anglia and Norfolk and that they could see the landscape and they could see the sort of barrenness some got it a bit wrong and kept talking about fens because they thought I was further up. And, but <laughs> that's fine. There are fens. Um, and I just, I kind of started, that started feeding back into, I wasn't writing for what people thought, but 
it really made me aware that what people were getting from it was the landscape and was the folklore and was were the traditions that I'd kind of learned and then was thinking about while I was playing, like the Black Shuck piece. Um, and I never really knew that Blythe Church was known as Cathedral of the Marches. Uh, but now every time I see it, I'm like, of course it is. Of course, you know, it's just glowing orange on a, on a bit of a risen hill. Um, and I wrote this piece, um, but I'm not going to play it <laughs> because I just, it's on a different fiddle and blah blah. But um, I'll play something else in a minute. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's like I'd got the idea of this place in my head, and then it's like the story emerged. And actually, that was somebody coming up to me after a performance and saying, "Oh my God, I could hear the claws um, when he was trapped inside by the church." And then when I sort of listened again, I was like, "Oh my God, I've literally." written him, you know, Black Shuck trying to claw his way out of this building. Um, so then I kind of, yeah, just sort of opened up um, how I thought about my own music and, and traditions. Um, yeah, so that's that bit. <laughs> um, so I am going to play something, um, but I also wanted to say about um, an album that I did with Polly Wright, who was from the, you know, the Black Shack Festival in Bungie that she's um, one of the directors of. Um, when I first met her, she said she was a musician, and because I felt a bit awkward, it's really weird making friends when you're a grown-up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so I always accidentally get into projects with people before I really... Uh, got to know them or anything. So the first thing we did was we went to Ravningham Church, which is like my favourite place for recording in, because um, it's always open and it's really small and just a really great sound. Um, and we went there and I was like, okay, let's just do some singing. <laughs> so we brought along the um, uh, New Suffolk Garland, which is from 17, do you know the date? <laughs> 17 something, 70 something. Um, and there's a Norfolk garland and a Suffolk garland, and it's full of proverbs and things that have been collected like over a century before that. So everything that you kind of look at, even if it's from then, it's like you know that it's 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 much older than that. Um, a bit like a violin, I always think, because the tree that was cut down was already that violin's like three hundred, like two hundred and fifty years old, but the tree was already four or five hundred years old. So it's. <laughs> um, so yeah, the first thing we did was take things like, um, you know, uh, sayings like, as the crow flies, um, and then we kind of made this thing, seeing as the crow flies, and improvised around lots of these words in, in a style of heterophonic improvisation, which is basically when you, one person sings and the other person or group of people try and match them. So it's a bit like if you sing along to the radio when you don't know the song, that's just the um, fancy name for it, really, hydrophonic <laughs> improvisation. Um, and so we did lots of that kind of stuff. Um, and then it was for a sound installation at my sister's sculpture drill in Ravningham. And we put it on a post um, with telephone receivers, um, a sort of speaker in, a, in an old Bakelite telephone. Um, and all the phones were plugged into it, and it was exactly one mile as the crow flies from the church to there. And so you could lift it up, and it was like you were listening to these women's voices singing folk proverbs in the church down the road. So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's just one of the things that happened. And I just think that so much of it is there's just there aren't that many women's voices in folklore and traditional music or well loads of things, but like specifically in the things that I was looking at. And so I really wanted to bring out the proverbs because I felt like these are things that all of the people would have been saying to each other and be passed down from men and women, not just like ploughboys and sticking with the kind of more traditional, you know, farm labouring East Anglian stuff. Um, so yeah, I really wanted to kind of re revisit somehow, draw out of the walls um, these voices of the people that maybe weren't heard as much. Um, yeah, so there's that. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just going to say one of the things I used to do with, I did a couple of times with Jen, was um, play on Radio Norfolk um, at Foxleywood. I think we did a couple of May Days where we went up and, and she spoke about, where is it? I think it's near Deerham, is it? Does anyone know it? Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I used to, I would go and play the fiddle and then and she would talk about something. And so that was really nice and just being completely rural just with the sound recorders there from Radio Norfolk. Um, okay, I think that's enough of that stuff. So I'm just going to play you a, have I got enough time to yes, play a yes, tune? Yes, yes, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I'm going to play you a couple of things um, and then I'll tell you about my zine. Um, so, yeah, one of them, what should we do? Okay, I'll do this one, it's called Swarm Intelligence. And it's um, it's based on an improvisation and some something from a collection called the Cantigas de Santa Maria, and which is a collection of three three hundred and ten four hundred. I'm looking at somebody who might know four hundred. No, okay, doesn't know <laughs> four hundred and ten um, songs, which were commissioned by Alfonso the Great. Um, so that combined with journeys I took as a teenager when I had a regular gig at the Ferry Inn in Reedham. So <laughs> it makes sense to me. <laughs> so these are the kind of traditional elements that I'm bringing in. Anyway, so um, this is, yeah, Swarm Intelligence. And I recorded it in a container in a field in South Norfolk. So it might have gone a bit floppy because it's quite damp. <laughs> Should be okay. <laughs> Normally I play a lot and then talk a little bit, so it's a bit backwards for me today, so I think that's, that's okay. <laughs>
I found a book um, on a trolley outside Southwold Library that was, they were getting rid of all the extras <laughs> and the books that obviously weren't very popular. And there was this one that was written by a man who had returned from the First World War and he was kind of writing about why he'd been there um, and why he was so um, obviously pleased to be home. and. Um, so he sort of documented all of the birds in the area and all the birds that come at different times, like during the winter and the summer, and um, their sort of flight movements and things like that. So um, it was called, the album that I made based on that was called Simultaneous Flight Movement. And it's all about, um, uh, well, yeah, sort of sum somersaultings and um, what was I going to play? Um, uh, oh, yeah. The interrelation of diverse emotions um, in regard to birds. Um, and one of the other things that I did that I released last year is um, uh, an album called Antigone of the Trees, and that's based on kind of the garden birds that were just really, really loud during lockdowns. And I was trying to record, and they were just so loud, and I was just like, okay, I'm just going to have to play with you. So that, then I made that transcribing the birds and everything into. Um, the music that I was making. So I think that I've always kind of wanted to, well birds are really good aren't they because they just really good. Um, you, can, um, you can draw so much from them and they folklorically and they're gatherers and they're hunters and they share and they steal and they're wise and they <coughs> eat and they communicate and we have all of these stories and folklore sayings about them that I just kind of wanted to see what that, how that would come out in music for me. So I'm going to play you a little bit of one, which is uh, the interrelation of diverse emotions, which um, I recorded, improvised inside Southwold, I want to say cathedral, no, lighthouse, <laughs> a bit different. But yeah, I don't know if you've, how many people have been in there, but because it's just totally hollow with the stairs around, so that the only floor in it is the, um, the light room, or the lamp room. Um, so it's yeah, really swirling, echoey sound. <laughs> <laughs>
was the other thing I was going to say about the bird law that goes that's sort of gone into the music is um, I think I said about gatherers, but they're also um, omens um, and uh, sort of mythical creatures. And there's a one that I really liked um, that was about a girl who became an owl. Mm -hmm. so I'm going to make that into a trap. Anyway, I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about my zine now. Um, so, martial law. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't really realise where it came from. I just, a few months ago, um, I don't know, I, I get, I just kind of have to keep doing projects and things all the time. And um, I thought it would be really good just to make a scene, because I kept talking to people and everyone's got stories. And so I was like, oh, I, what if I just don't think, overthink it and make something with the... It, the link has to be something to do with East Anglia and marshes and... Um, it can be real or imagined, but there has to be some kind of real or imagined link with the area. Um, there are so many people and so many stories, um, artists, writers, poets, musicians, um, and people that don't do any of those jobs who um, really wanted to write something. So one of them was my original recorder teacher and piano teacher who used to drive around all the villages giving us piano lessons. Um, but he had an awful lot to say about We Taker. <laughs> so <laughs> we thought that was like, yeah, okay, I really want you to do that. You know, he's just spent all of his life playing the piano um, and not talking so much. And so he had a lot of things that he'd driven around for like years and years and years, these marshes and these places. So yeah, kind of wanted to include people that had an influence on me as well. Um, so in the so we've done two issues. Um, the first one is the yellow one. There's only three copies of that one left, and then I've just done a few extras for tonight of the red one, which is issue two. Um, and I, I wrote in it in the second one about my history of helping my mum and her friend make the parish magazine. Um, they were both atheists, um, but they really really liked the Gestetna printing press. <laughs> They kind of thought, well, we could volunteer because if we were doing it together, that would be fun. Um, so on the back of this one, I found recently in the attic, which is where we find all the good things, um, a 19, well, it's not even that old, really, depending on how old you are, 1988, um, copy of the magazine, the RAV Group magazine, and they'd, they'd done this thing that they'd typed out and they'd got a clip art drawing <laughs> of a typewriter, and um, my mum, this is totally my mum writing this, and she said, please bear with us over the quality where the cue was like dropped off. The quality of our printing, colon, we are doing our best in the face of cold machinery and damp paper. <laughs> Next month should be better, <laughs> as we hope to have moved into the Methodist room. But the mag may be late because of this move, so please don't blame your distributor. Thank you, editors. Oh. <laughs> so I thought they needed to be there. They needed, they're like the OG local <laughs> parish <laughs> magazine. And without them, I wouldn't know how to collate anything. Um, so there's that. And also um, a village um, thing that happened again in the, trying to work it out, 80s, late 80s, where all the children from the villages, Thelton, Norton, Haddiscoe, uh, Old to be places like that in South Norfolk and a little bit of, well, is it Suffolk? It's got a Suffolk postcode, anyway. Um, there was uh, a writer who you probably have heard of, Clive King, who wrote Stig of the Dump. 
and and that was like turned into a BBC, a couple of BBC um, programs and things. But he lived in the village as well, and all the grown-ups um, would um, offer something for the kids to do in the summer. It's like, and in the magazine you get this thing with a timetable, and you could choose what you wanted to do. So I chose going to the blacksmiths um, <laughs> and uh, going to this lady who I knew her husband played the fiddle. Even though the thing was with her, I really wanted to have a look at his violin. Um, and uh, going and making a, the Frolic magazine. <laughs> so that was my first experience with uh, putting together that with the, the RAV magazine. Um, we did like a, a young people thing with Clive King, who was very, he didn't really say very much. He's a very mysterious man. And he lived down Low Road, and, and everyone was like, well, he's a really famous writer. And, but you know, then he let like eight of us into his house, and we all sat around a table and, and said what we wanted to do. And I wrote a really embarrassing piece of music about how great the frolic was. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully we won't find that anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so there we go. Um, and so a lot of the contributions for the zine have come through conversations um, with people, like I said. And then one day in June this year, I just thought, I'm going to make it a real thing. Uh, my plan was to make a couple of copies for sale at the Ramingham Sculpture Trail. Um, and then I thought I'd pop a few online. <laughs> and then it sold out. And then I had to get some more done. And then I had to get a third run. Um, and it was all a bit unintentional and improvised. And, and that's kind of, I think, a good way to make things. Because then it doesn't scare, you don't scare yourself off with how much work it actually is. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I just wanted to make it. Um, and it was really nice finding that other people wanted to read it and wanted to be involved. Um, so, yeah, I didn't want to think too much about what it would be. But now we've got these people who, it turns out, uh, have actually... Um, one of them's a PhD student who's staying down the road at the Piano Restorers. And he, it turned out that the um, person who first documented Black Shark was the person that he's writing his whole PhD about. So there was a whole like weird coming together of things there um, and also I'm a bit obsessed with taking photos of the moon so I put some of those in there you know just the usual things that you might do when you have to make your own entertainment in, in the country so <laughs> um, so uh, yeah so I don't know what else to say oh yes okay so I've got my one name drop I oh, know that's my third name drop but you'll like this one um, so I went into it with an open approach, an improvisational zine, with only one rule being that it had to be to do with the marshes, or people who came from the marshes, or East Anglia, or a connection, however tenuous. For example, my friend and collaborator, Laurie Goldston, who's a cellist, composer, performer, and best known for playing with the band Earth, and also as the cellist on Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. Um, so she came to Norfolk last summer on her way to Italy. We'd done a tour together around the UK, and um, I took her to all my favourite places. I took her to Raffningham Church, and I took her to St Olive's Priory, where she got really bad back because there was no chairs, and she sat on the steps, and we made an album, you know, that sort of thing. And um, so we recorded and improvised in the undercroft. And she didn't really have a link to the area, but this weekend, just gone, um, she emailed me to say that she'd been doing some more research and has found that her ancestors are from Wrentham <laughs> and Laxfield. Um, so that's very exciting. So now it's all, in retrospect, fine that she wrote about animals in Seattle for Marshall. <laughs> it totally makes that, I think. 
um, anyway, um, yeah, so um, another reason that the zine exists is that myself, my mum and Polly Wright had a, a really funny email chain about a virtual village fate that we were going to put on, so through the pandemic, and we kept occasionally driving past, you know, fridges that are left on the side of the road, and Polly would say, oh, I've seen a really good fridge, do you think we can use it for our, <laughs> for our fate to keep, the, you know, to, for the ladies to do the tea, and then we were like, all decided we won't have real toilets, because it was COVID, and so we would just have virtual ones, and so then we ended up creating in our heads an entire village fate, <laughs> couldn't exist, but there is a whole page advert for it in, in, the, in Marshall. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's on the 37th of October, <laughs> so you just missed it, but just only a little bit, by a few days. Um, so all of the ideas are based on rural Norfolk traditions and events, um, such as real things like the Threshing Fair, which is now the Ramping Country Fair, village jumble sales, guess the weight of the pig, ferret racing, all of the normal, you know, the things that, and some of these things people still do, don't they, in 2023, it's not like, you know, we still live in a kind of rural place, and there are village traditions. Um, anyway, uh, so you get the idea about martial law. It's real and imagined, but there is always something there that's threaded through the centuries. Um, folklore that's passed on, and events and traditions, and the Lantern Men, which the Norfolk Folklore Society wrote about in the Yellow Martial Law, um, the first one. Um, that always was a sort of an important story for me from a really young age. Um, the pub that the man, what was the, can you remember the pub? Not because I'm, I'm an impression. Oh no, it's not. Okay, anyway, there's a pub in Norton where the, uh, the bargemen, I'm not really sure, I can't remember. Like anyway, Wherryman, that's it. Um, would walk up from the marshes and from the river and stuff, and they would go up to this pub. And then I found out, I was having like, it was very odd, I had Alexander lessons with this lady when I was about 12 and it was really weird and creepy and I didn't understand what it was at all, which is, but it's all about balance and, and playing music while people move your arms. <laughs> it's really weird. Anyway, it turned out that this place was the pub that was in the story, the original folklore about the lantern men, and it was her house. Um, so it was like a really very weird, just an old part of, you know, going somewhere for a music lesson or something, and then realising, oh my god, this is actually, there's a reason it's so creepy and weird. It's because, um, you know, lantern men drawing people into the marches and doing whatever they wanted to do. <laughs> I don't know. You never find out what they do. No! <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Like all of my folklore at the beginning. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, it was a very strange building and experience. Um, basically, I suppose, I don't feel like an authority on anything particularly, but I'm really interested in how all these things feed in to our daily lives and our creativity and our music and art and writing and just conversation. Um, and I think we're all made up of all of the traditions that we that we like. You know, there's a reason that some we really like and some we don't, and it has to speak to you. So traditions and rituals, whether externally created or, or created by ourselves, are just really good for fun, but for reassurance um, and for safety and coziness. And I think that's everything. <laughs> well, thank you.
I'll just stand here. Oh, <laughs> Do you want a seat? No, it's fine. I'll just make it. <laughs> you know, I'll that. <laughs> um, I think the first thing I'd like, it's more of an observation really than a question. So um, I love the title, like Real and Imagined Folklore of East Anglia. Um, because when you're reading it, and I think it kind of says a lot about folklore to me, you can't, you don't, we, I don't know which is the real and which is the imagined. Yeah. Some of it is so... Like, like the uh, Bishop Beaver of Babbling Lake. That's real. I know. <laughs> like, they like, ordained a beaver. It's real. You know, so, so, like, that's it with folklore. Like, who is to say what is yeah, like, real? That's why Jen was so good, though, because she would go as far back and get as many sources and as just as much as possible yeah. to really find out really what people thought. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of it has like with any story, there's like an element of something real in there. Yeah. But what could be the real thing about the bishop being like, no. like, what did like, he do? I can't remember. He rescued built, uh, so built a bridge. No, he rescues someone who's the same. Can I St. Felix? Yes, it was St. Felix. Yeah. Um, and then and then he was made a bishop. So, but it's like it's such a brilliant story. Um, but when I was reading Marshall and you spoke about it at the start, um, the like everyday folklore and something else that I found quite interesting was uh, some of the folklore that you put in there. I kind of recognise. I do it different. Yeah. And it made me think like everybody probably like does the folklore different, but it's nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I find like with the magpies, yeah. I always say, uh, good morning, Mr. Magpie, do a salute. And how are you today? Yeah, no, I oh. just say good morning. <laughs> says, hello, Mr. Magpie, where's your wife? Oh. But so it's again, everyone has like all these little, yeah. like, and with hagstones, yeah. um, you only call it keeps the witches out. And I'm like, well, I have not, but I can still get into my house. Yeah. <laughs> so I always say. But there's also the one where if you look through a hagstone, then the next person you look at is going to be your lover, or oh it's going to die. So details But so with the hagstones, I have kind of like adapted that because obviously I don't want to be able to get into my own house. Yeah. Um, so I say like it keeps away curses. Or like yeah, I think it keeps away bad things. Yeah. So it's just I find it just really interesting that how much you know how did that hagstone story start? You know, if I'm changing it for myself, how many? I just think that there's like the there was somebody that someone was like, I just really don't want you to come round. <laughs> <laughs> oh, got a really big hag stone. <laughs> That'll keep them out. I don't know. <laughs> um, but actual questions now. I okay, have okay, actual okay. questions. Um, do you have any thoughts on why folklore seems to be so popular at the moment? Uh, <laughs> Should I ever ask you these questions for like uh, No, no, <laughs> no. I think that. Um, I think that people are reaching for things for security and for to feel like they belong in the world in some ways. That's how I feel about that. Um, I don't know. It does. It's definitely more popular and more. But also, I think that people are being a bit more honest about what they like. You know, over the last few years, maybe we all got to spend a bit more time in our own brains and. And just thought, actually, I do really like watching Hallmark films, <laughs> 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 or I do really like folklore, or I do really like dressing up. And 
I do really like doing spells and seeing if that'll work, or making talisman, or burying coins like my sister and I did. We made some Iceni coins based on the ones in the Norwich Museum, in the Castle Museum. They're over there, by the way. And we took them and we buried them, and then we dug them up, and we went, oh my god, we found a board! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm finding it a bit funny at the minute, like with lots of social media and stuff like that, just generally overwhelming people. And I literally, yesterday, I followed everyone, so nothing personal. <laughs> but I feel like, I don't know, we just have to spend a little bit more time in our own heads because it's all just too whizzy and it's too much and there's so much going on all the time and it's so instantly available that we need the we need to feel like we've got some ancestors and that it is going to be all right and that people have got through loads of things over centuries and centuries and I don't know that's kind of why I think people are gravitating. Yeah, do you think that? Yeah, yeah I do. That, you said it very well. That's exactly what I would But probably much more. Not very <laughs> more words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so... My last question, because you answered quite a few of them actually beforehand, um, but my last question, and possibly the most important question, and one that I try and ask everyone that we ask questions of, um, which is scarier, a monk-headed dog or a dog-headed monk? <laughs> monk-headed dog? Dog, I don't know. Hang on, wait. <laughs> I don't want to rush, just hang on. <laughs> just picture it for a minute. Oh, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm not picturing a good head on the dog. It's not a good. It's not a good. No, mind. it isn't. Is like, it? A mock-headed dog is terrifying. Oh God! Should we have a vote? Dog, dog head. A dog-headed monk or a monk. But what are they for? Why? <laughs> Um, there's Mrs. Um, uh, 
Oh, uh, what's her name? From Erskine, Mrs. Ludden, who had lots of sayings and things like, if your dog is barking at night, you have to turn your shoe. And that will stop the dog. Just turn the shoe, and that will stop the dog from barking. Yeah, there's some good. When I was doing the stuff with Jen, I had to research some things to do with medicine, and some of them were about getting a bit of hair from the person who's ill, wrapping it around a twig or a leaf uh, specifically, and putting it, cutting a hole in a tree, and putting it in there, and then going in a barn, <laughs> and opening the door at one end, and then quickly closing it and opening it at the other end, so whatever it was that you were ill with could go through. There's a, a kind of a similar one that we found out for Ample Day, which is um, if you have warts and you um, chop an apple in half, rub it on the warts, then you bury the apple, and as the apple rots, your warts will disappear. Yeah. Which kind of sounds like, the, I don't know if apple juice might be just good for warts, <laughs> and then the extra bit was just to like make it a bit fancy. Yeah. <laughs> fancy folklore. <Yeah. laughs> yeah. yeah. drama. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know without like, yeah. I don't know, my dad always says, but he didn't say this when we lived at home, um, <laughs> me and my, to me and my sister, but his dad used to, on Valentine's Day, he used to, what was it, Jack Valentine's Is that yeah. a Norwich thing? Yeah. Yeah. He used to like put presents, so they lived on the, on Swansea Road, just in now what Golden Triangle, and there was like hundreds of them, <laughs> like my dad had lots of brothers and they all lived in a tiny, tiny house, <laughs> and um, their dad would um, put a, um, like a heart or something like that, he'd knock on the door and run, a, run around the back, and then, I don't know, I don't even that's it, but they never did it for us, but he said it was like everyone in Norwich did it. It is a very yeah. like Norwich specific thing, yeah, okay. like no one so we've got a little while to wait for yeah. that one. So. So you have to put like a Valentine present or a heart or something on the doorstep and then run away. So it's on Valentine's Eve. Valentine's Eve. And then also they always, my dad's always saying Old Year's Night. He never does New Year's Eve, he always does Old Year's Night. Sorry, it's not I'm not very good answers. Like, yeah, it just means like on New instead of New celebrating New Year's Eve, he just celebrates the year that's just gone rather than what's coming. So give it a nice bit of closure. Any other questions? Um, you've spoken a little bit about sort of your own personal folklore, which is quite a sort of messy magpie-ish kind of approach. <laughs> yeah. But then on the other hand, like your research for a kind of academic folklorist. Um, which sounded like quite a sort of precise, meticulous exercise. Like, where, so when you're putting together those like academic football, like, what do you decide? What is? Well, I, where I, do you stop? Like, mm -hmm. how how far back do you go? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to be really honest and say that I have. I was very prescribed what she wanted, mm -hmm. and I was like probably the third or fourth research assistant down. So I was literally checking all the references and page numbers and everything. So I wasn't getting. Uh, but occasionally, I was getting to. Do she would she would tell me which library and which librarian to contact, and the internet didn't have all the things because it was all the way back in two thousand and two, <laughs> so the whole of folklore wasn't on the internet then, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. I had just finished a master's, so I was still in that mindset of being able to actually research and follow threads, but I had to check everything with her, so I didn't really get that much autonomy with it. So does that make any? Uh, so, so I suppose, like in your own in your own 
you, how do you sort of, do you like define between like sort of this imagined made up messy folklore and then like the, the authentic? Uh, no. No, you just... <laughs> but I don't see it as like messy folklore. No. I, I think, I think that I stuck to rules so much with going to music college and I hated it so much and it's just not me and it never was. And I went as a recorder player and so I did that my undergrad and my masters and so I was doing loads of Baroque stuff and, and even like the improvisation at that point, the way that I was taught it was all very prescribed and you have to decorate and ornament your music in a certain way, in a certain style, and it has to be this, and obviously French embellishments are like this, and Italian is like that. And I just, it completely, I hated it. Um, but I really loved the sound of all the things, and so I just thought at one point, fuck it, I just have to do the things that speak to me, and I have to put those into my stuff. So I still read masses of music and masses of scores and, and take things from them, but I've had to stop being scared or worried what anyone will think, and part of, moving out of Norwich or moving out of anywhere where you're really putting yourself in an environment, not Norwich really, but put, taking yourself out of an environment where people are discussing those things all the time meant that I could be really free and make my own thing. So I feel like I'm constantly making my own kind of stories and boundaries, but um, I just don't think there's a right answer to how to do things, and definitely not with music and folklore, because everything could be interpreted and reinterpreted in so many different ways, but I think the core of it has to feel right, and so I just go with feelings. That's the best way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anything else? Oh, uh, you said about like when you used to go around and play in churches. Did you like have to get permission to do that? Like happy to do that? Some of them I did. <laughs> did I really never stop you. <laughs> no, 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 no. And you can do it. I do it all the time. And I've recorded loads of albums like that. So the Ravningham Church, um, we rented a house on the estate. So I did ask. Sir Nicholas Bacon, if you want to know who to ask. <laughs> I did ask, I said, is it okay? Because it's kind of in their garden, but not totally in their garden. Um, but he was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, it's open from dawn till dusk, just do what you like. Um, and then some of them, like, there are some that are too creepy for words, though. Like, just too creepy. And you go there and it's like, I can't even go in. Um, but no, mostly I don't really like asking people this. I just... I don't do anything like, you know, uh, I don't know how to explain it. I just go and then if I feel like one is good then I'll go and if I'm allowed in. And most of the time if you bump into a church warden they're like really happy to have somebody going in there and enjoying or exploring the space. Um, and I still, well I just did something in um, Norwich Cathedral. I was, because I'm playing, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, I can say that now. Um, um, artist in residence, am I allowed to say that? Oh, the Norfolk Norwich Festival. <laughs> well, I said that? Yeah. <laughs> um, next year. And one of the projects, one of the performances I'm doing in there is um, uh, Antiphony of the Trees. But I went in a few weeks ago, about a month ago, um, to see what the acoustics were like. And um, I did some improvising, and I might have slightly recorded a, a release while I was in there <laughs> doing that, which was like half trying out the acoustics and half just wanted to see what happened and then I got home and I was like, oh, what's this? So it turned into something. Um, but the ones that I generally don't ask, because it's a bit complicated, but if, if I feel like 
I need to book it, then I'll book it, and then sometimes I'll just give them a donation in the donation box. We usually put something in there. And um, like Southwold, Southwold, not cathedral, what did we say? Lighthouse. <laughs> um, they're really good because they're part of Trinity, Trinity House Lighthouse. Is that what they're called? Trinity something? Sorry, I've forgotten everything now because it was already there. Um, uh, they're really amazing because you can actually book to go in. If you book yourself a tour of the lighthouse as a group <laughs> on your own, <laughs> um, it's £15 for half an hour. So I, I, I booked it for like an hour and a half, two hours. So that wasn't very much money. And to, as a recording space, and I went in there and I recorded everything. And I improvised as much as I could with a man sitting there who <laughs> helped with safety in case I decided to run up the <laughs> tower. Which I wasn't because I realised I had vertigo. Anyway, um, but he was sat, sat there, and every time I stopped playing, he would continue stuffing his envelopes. And so it sort of broke the spell. But um, yeah, there, there are lots of places around that you can really that you can go inside that you might not think you can. And there are always people to ask, and there are lots of places that are free to go in, and the people do genuinely want you to explore. And you know, I, I just love that you could be somewhere, um, and you just have that time on your own in such a magical, resonant building. So, yeah. <laughs> kind of following on with that. Yeah. So obviously, churches are kind of they're always a hard community. Going back to Middle Ages, yeah. Do you find when you're doing music and they're kind of invoking the people that are kind of in, in a sense, or the ones that were practicing folklore throughout yeah, history? Yeah, that was one of the... Going into churches. Kind of yeah, and I feel like people had to be so quiet, and like the only time they would get time to themselves to sit quietly, maybe, or in their own head, yeah. is when they're in church. And so that was kind of the idea with the Singers of the Crow Flies, is that, like, what thoughts have gone into these walls? What people have been here but I'm not religious you see I'm just really but these are the only buildings that are really still <laughs> standing from that time so it makes me feel very connected that communities did go into them even if they were made to believe certain religions and, and doctrines and you know um, but yeah I mean you can't really avoid people going in I don't think no, yeah. but sometimes I don't want that so I'll, I'll like recorded in a um, whopping hydraulic power station and or an aircraft hangar you know <laughs> it's it's not all churches um, but it's all things that have that are like massive loudspeakers any more questions just wanted to know a bit more about the creepiness of this in his house that you were oh yeah because I, I don't know anything about the London but I don't know ah, okay this. it's kind of like these so across the marshes when a mist might roll in. Um, there are these, you can probably explain it better, but there are like little lights, like gases. Mm. They sometimes refer to as will o' the wisp. Yeah. 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 Um, they do have like a Latin name that I can't say, yeah. but someone else might be able to say it. You can eat something. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're meant to basically um, lead people. They like lure you into the marshes and then you drown. Because you, you think it's like a candlelight or a lantern. Well, there's a person, so you're like, oh, do you need help? But when you were, you found it creepy before you knew. Uh, oh yeah, because I the house was yeah, really I creepy. Yeah, I wanted to know, like, <laughs> I wanted to know about that. Why was it creepy? Why was it creepy? Uh, well, it was creepy because I was like 12 and. I was sudden. I mean, I don't know. It, I didn't really understand what Alexander technique was, which so it's a very sort of uh, physical, musical, 
um, uh, a sort of, well, how do you explain it, anyone? <laughs> it's kind of like, it's so that you, everything's about sort of equilibrium and balance in your playing, so that you can really be the most fluid and relaxed. So if you're like an opera singer, she specialised in opera singers, but um, some of them stayed with us while they were doing a course there, so she offered me three lessons, well, offered my mum them, and so then I had to keep going there, not keep going there, but I, I had these lessons, and I found the whole house um, because it was like, it really stands out as one of the oldest, creepiest places. I can't, I can't really do any better than that. I think, I don't know, I just think it's like dark 1980s, early 90s marshland village. Does that, enough? <laughs> yeah, and then knowing that just down the road, um, you've got the, uh, what is it, the year? <laughs> I don't know. I grew up on the Northern Broads, and I'm like, oh, that's a broad. But, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, there's this whole, the, the landscape there is very barren, and you have also these, um, I just remember from when I was little, when we used to walk home from school, the cows would always be being moved at a certain time, so you'd have to wait. <laughs> like, so in the road, and I'm gone, there's like 1,500 cows. But in the, when it's really misty, you just you can see their feet, and you just saw these floating cows. <laughs> so it's really like that combined with the lantern men, yeah. which, are, yeah, I think it's just a slightly creepy area, I think, maybe. <laughs> Any other questions? Shall we give Laura another round of applause?